I'm Nick Abrahams, and welcome to Web3, From Mystery to Main Street, the podcast where we talk about how technologies like crypto, DeFi, NFTs, and the metaverse are being successfully embraced by mainstream businesses. Welcome back to Web3, From Mystery to Main Street, uh, the podcast where we try to understand what is actually happening with Web3, whether it's crypto, NFTs, the metaverse, What's actually happening for big organizations, you know, coming out of Web 2 and so forth? And today we've got a fantastic example of a wonderful Web 3 project from the Australian Open, the Australian Tennis Open. And so joining me from Tennis Australia is Ridley Plummer, who is the Metaverse and NFT Project Manager for Tennis Australia. So Ridley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nick. Great to be here. Fantastic. Well, look... Can I just say congratulations? Obviously, it was an amazing uh, outcome for the uh, the 2022 Open with the uh, the Metaverse project, and we'll hear more about that. But can I just say, firstly, what a sensational title! Can you tell us what does a Metaverse and NFT project manager do? Yeah, thank you. I, I don't think four, five, six months ago anyone would have thought that uh, you'd have Metaverse and NFT project manager in anyone's title, but. Uh, no, look, it's been a fantastic few months. Uh, I think the success of the event, uh, overall was, was great in real life. And, and then that was matched in, in the metaverse, I guess. So my remit and responsibility throughout the, the lead up to the event and through the tournament was to, I guess, execute and, and strategize all of our uh, metaverse and NFT, um, uh, execution in, in market, which, was a, a really short runway up until the event and, and we had some, some challenges there and, and had to navigate, uh, a few things in market. And, and obviously for a lot of people right now, the exploration of this space is very new. And I think for, for the team that was building this internally, um, a lot of that was, was pure exploration. And so when we got to November and they sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, we know you double it. A little bit in your your spare time in this space. Um, would you like to take on this project? My eyes kind of lit up and and said, "Yep, let's go for it." Uh, and yeah, here we are, four months later, and we've done quite a lot in that that time. So that's, I mean, it's it's an amazing sort of way that you've described how how it came to. And in fact, I noticed that um, Telefonica Spain just announced uh, over the last couple of days. They've appointed a, a chief metaverse officer and there's quite a bit of cynicism surrounding that and so forth. But could you just give us a bit of a sense because Tennis Australia, I mean, and we know that, you know, particularly with the Australian Open, it has always been a very sort of innovative event, a lot of focus on the technology and so forth. But how, how did the whole idea that, you know, NFTs and metaverse is something that the Australian Open should get onto, how did that where did, where did that come from within the organisation? Then I guess a little bit more about how does someone like you, you know, get, get that job? Because I think there'll be people out there who've got an interest in this space who are thinking, I want that, you know, I want a job like that. How do I, how can I, how do I convince my organisation? Yeah. So the original discussion, I guess, uh, came from the activity that was happening in market from a sponsorship perspective. So we were seeing some pretty large crypto platforms do some pretty large deals in market and obviously that was of interest to tennis australia and the australian open from a sponsorship perspective so 
probably almost 12 months ago now, we, we started having discussions in market with a number of players and, and exploring what that could become. And, and while that was happening in the background, I think we were also seeing the marketplace grow for NFTs and the likes of uh, NBA Top Shot and some of the other large sporting organizations and media rights holders in the market start to dip their toe in and or, or even jump right in the deep end, you might say. Um, so as we were having those discussions internally, we eventually got to the point that we were so close to the event and hadn't signed on any any partners that we chose to sort of um, pivot a little bit in, in that sense and drive a little bit harder down our own path. What does this look like for the AO if we are to build our own metaverse experience or our own NFT um, product or platform? So when we sort of went back to the drawing board a little bit, we realized that we'd, we'd been running down this path for actually quite a while. And that, that innovation word that you used earlier is a, is a big part of what we do at, at tennis and the Australian Open. And that's what we're known for amongst a lot of the, the Grand Slams and major tournaments is the innovation that, that we focus on to, I guess, for most part, benefit the, the audience and the crowd and the fans that a lot of it's done for them. In hindsight, what we then realized was, hey, the fans can't come to the event as easily as they could in the past. And Melbourne's a really difficult place to get to at the best of times, let alone when you've got border closures and restrictions on who can travel where. Uh, so what we chose to do was, I guess, build a strategy and an objective, which was to become the world's most accessible sports and entertainment event. And Accessible can be, I guess, have a, a number of different meanings now, whether that's coming on site, um, with your family or in a wheelchair or on a, in a morning or an afternoon or an evening and what that looks like for your in real life experience versus what your online experience is. And so for us, creating a, a seamless, accessible online experience for fans all around the world was really important. And whether you were logging in from, uh, London or New York and you were a tennis fan or if you were logging in from Brazil or somewhere in the Middle East and you were a soccer fan, uh, we wanted to get that audience to come to the AO in some way, shape or form. So naturally uh, creating our Decentraland build and really going to where the audience was uh, and not necessarily trying to bring that audience to us was a, an important factor in that. And so can we talk a little bit then about, because I mean, I love the fact that there's that, that strong thematic spine to the proposition, which is, you know, accessible to everyone. Uh, and can you give us a sense of sort of granularly, what is that, ex- what, you know, what, what was the Decentraland experience like for the user? And then also with, you know, the, the, uh, the NFT drop of the, uh, of the designer balls and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. So the Decentraland build was a really important factor in this project for us. And, and one of the reasons that we chose Decentraland and, and Vegas City, where we built in Decentraland, was because of the, I guess, the connection to the audience that we could create through that and, and the likeness to in real life, as, as hard as that may, may seem. What we tried to do through that build was create those moments where people were thinking, what can I do next? Where do I go next? Where haven't I explored? Which is exactly the mentality that we have in real life when people come to the site. We want them to have that almost Disneyland style experience where they walk in the gate and they go, 
what can't we miss? What's the first ride we have to go on? What what do we have to see? What's that bucket list item? Um, and that surrounds tennis. So when people come to the AO, we know that they spend eight or nine hours on site, and some of those people won't see a tennis ball hit. They'll go and explore the precinct or they'll explore the food and the restaurants and the bars and the entertainment that comes around the event. So that was important that we created that element in Decentraland too. So whether that was through gamification or collectibles or um, use of archive footage that we have 50 years of in the can at Tennis Australia, we could ensure that when someone came back to the event in Decentraland, there would be something new for them every day, which is exactly the mentality that we take in real life. We want a family to come on Monday with the kids and go to the the ballpark and spend two or three hours in the ballpark with the kids. And then everyone's exhausted, so they have to go home. And then the parents go, well, we didn't see any tennis, and we kind of came for tennis. So why don't we buy a ticket to Rod Laver Arena and we'll come back on Wednesday night and we'll have a, a champagne and a meal at Rockpool and we'll have a bit of a date night. And then they go, oh, but I... We had a great night, but we didn't see any of the music or any of the entertainment and we want to have some fun with friends. So they come back on the weekend with their friends and they have a couple of beers on Grand Slam Oval and maybe play up a bit and and maybe don't see any tennis. But we've brought them back on multiple occasions to have three completely different experiences. So that was what we wanted to do with Decentraland as well. And then that flowed into the NFT collection where we wanted people to, I guess, have an investment and ownership over the, the the game of tennis where they could be watching from anywhere in the world and they were completely engaged in every match because they wanted to see where that, that match point was landing and if it was landing on their plot of the court. And then we saw through through our Discord the the language that people were using around the engagement that they now had with tennis where they'd never had that previously. And, and that was people talking about, you know what, I'm sitting up till 1, 2, 3 a.m. wherever they are in the world or I'm, I'm watching from early morning because I wanted to watch this match and see if my ball was a winning ball and I wanted to see if there was any consistency in where the winning match points were landing. And I've never done this before with tennis or I haven't done this for 10, 15 years, but now I feel... um not just invested, but engaged with, with the product. So I think that was a, a real, I think, success measure that we, we hadn't anticipated in the beginning of the project that people would engage with tennis in a way that they, they never have previously. Yep. And it's a, I love the way you described, uh, the experience of going to the Australian Open. I've, I've been lucky enough to go there a few times and, I, it, the first time I saw it, I, I was blown away by how expansive actually the whole experience is. And there's so many different things. I assumed I was just going to go to Rod Laver Arena or, you know, watch some tennis. Whereas, you know, it is like, it is like Disneyland. So, um, so I, I understand sort of the parallels then into Decentraland. Um, a couple of great things that you talked about there, which I'd, I'd love to drop into the first of which is, so, so the NFT ball drop, um, was, was interesting. In that, um, as I understand it, maybe you can explain it in a little more detail because I think, I think large corporates or big brands struggle to understand how to make NFTs relevant to people. And so you put that sort of element of gamification, which is, I'll let you explain how, you know, if the, the winning match ball sort of hit a particular, your, your area, then you won a, an actual ball. 
Um, so maybe if you can talk a little bit about that, and then um, then once you're through with that, we'll, we'll come back, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about Discord because um, I think that's what a lot of brands don't don't understand quite the the, the relevance of Discord to uh, to this to the Web three world. But let's, firstly, yeah, just the I guess how, how did you come up with this idea? So you've got you know designers working on the balls and so forth. Could it, I, mean, I imagine there must have been thousands of potential ideas and. What was the process to come up with the, with the winning one? Yeah, so it's a it's a good point, a great question. I think what <clears throat> what led us to that idea and and the eventual product was um, the lack of I guess connection and control we have over the player group in a way because when we originally looked at the project, we were like, well, we could just take the Top Shop model and take great plays from. 50 years of, of archive footage or whatever happens at this year's event. But there's no, um, there's nobody that, that governs the entire playing group from an IP rights perspective. So even though Tennis Australia own the footage that we, we capture during the events, we don't have the right to commercially, um, use that in, in market. We would have to go to every player individually for them to release their IP for us. So what we found very quickly was that Although we didn't want to do a Top Shot 2.0 and, and a bit of a, hey, we'll just follow that model, we, we never wanted to do that. That was never the intention. We had to then get really creative about how we actually did something in market that was, I guess, meaningful to the consumer. Um, and it was something that was first to world. We, we wanted to do something that was a bit of a game changer that no one had ever done before. So when we were working with our um, agency, Run It Wild, who were ideating some of the concepts for us, uh, the first pitch that they came back to us with included the AO art balls. And that was a standalone product at that stage. There was another idea that used data and, and created art through data um, that we also felt wasn't quite strong enough to stand alone as its own product. And then we had this moment where we were like, why don't we take the data from project B and put it with project A and have the art ball that is then somehow using data to keep it live in real time and have real time updates made to it. There was this moment where we all looked at each other through the screen and we're like, wow, no one's ever done this before. We should do this, but is it possible? And I think that at that moment we were like, right, everyone run really quickly at finding out what's possible here and why this makes sense. What are the watchouts? What are the dangers? Are there any red flags along the way? Um, and then how do we bring this to life? It's now the middle of November. Our event is two months away. We're trying to do eight months worth of work in eight weeks. Okay, how do we build the team to actually make this happen? Because we knew the event had a start date. We knew we had to be ready three days before that start date. Um, what could we do in between? Um, then we realized Christmas and New Year's was also thrown in the middle there as well. So that was a challenge in itself because we pretty much lost a week in the timeline, which at that point was around 20% of the timeline. Um, so yeah, that, that was, I guess, how the idea came about. And then it, it really finessed itself on a daily basis from there. And that involved getting artists to, to create the artwork for the balls or it involved getting old Australian open IP and then wrapping those onto the balls. And I think we were moving so quickly that we had to make decisions on the fly. 
and we didn't have time to think about it or evaluate too much what those decisions meant. So as it came together, the the building blocks just kept going up and it, it kept becoming this more and more beautiful product and concept because of the ideas we were able to flow into it, which in this digital world is is great because you can make those decisions and action them within 12 hours. If we were designing a physical product for this, you, you can't do that. Once you've designed the molds or you've designed the artwork or whatever it is, you're you're limited by the restrictions that that imposes on you. In the digital world, we can evolve in minutes and hours, not uh, not days and weeks. So, so that was great. Fantastic, and I, and I think and so that I guess in summary, for those that, that weren't familiar with it, so I guess if so, six and a half thousand or thereabouts um, art balls were created, and then they were, they were sort of bought by various people very quickly. I noted, and um, and then the proposition was that. Your, your ball equated to a particular part of the court. And if there was a match winning, uh, a, a particular match winning, um, uh, shot that landed on your little section of the court, then you actually received that ball. Is that, that's how? It- yeah. So, so the balls were received for the, or available for the finals. So the championships right. only. So we were following 11 championships through the tournament. So that was, Everything from the, the men's and women's singles right through all the doubles and into all the wheelchairs events oh, as well. Right. So we had 6,776 plots on the court that tied to the NFTs. They were all non-numerical. It was all completely random. So what I mean by that is if you were the first person to mint a ball, that didn't mean that you got number one and that you got court position number one. Everything was completely random. So first mint might be 576 in the ball number. That might be 4,200 in the court number. Um, and each court position was around 19 by 19 centimetres. And the reason that we we eventually got to the 6,776 balls is because we had to divide the court up perfectly equally. Uh, and that divided nicely as 6776, oh. which also is a term that you would hear quite regularly in tennis. Um, when you're reading scores. So there was all these nice synergies where everything just lined up. Yeah. I I wondered how that, how that number came about. Okay. Yeah. So there there is a bit of storytelling that, uh, that goes along with that one. So yeah, the, that, uh, and as I mentioned, um, yeah, 11 championship balls that could be claimed by the owner of that, that court position once the tournament was, was all said and done. Oh, fantastic. Now let's talk about Discord. Um, because I think it's, uh, it's, it seems to be critical. And I, I think one of the reasons why I particularly wanted to drill down into your NFT drop is we've seen, you know, 80 or 100, even more big brands around the world do NFT drops. Many of them not particularly successful because they're just, you know, a, a piece of branding. Um, and, and they haven't really taken off and, and you did a wonderful job of, of creating that sense of gamification and, and, and that sort of, uh, physical digital, uh, combination. So, so I think that was fantastic. The, the other thing is I don't think uh, necessarily brands understand the power of discord in this community. So I get, could, could you maybe just explain, uh, what discord is? And I think you've got it up. You have actually an extraordinarily engaged, I think it's 20,000 or something. I was amazed at the number of people 
um, who are on the, the Tennis Australia Discord channel. So, yeah, could you give us a bit of a sense of what is Discord and, uh, and how do you embrace it? Yeah, Discord is effectively a chat room. For really, for, for lack of a, a better term, it, it's a, a chat room or it's a community network. So what we actually did and what we have found in, in a lot of NFT drops, as you mentioned, is that the two critical communication channels are Discord and Twitter. Okay. Um, I don't know how and why that has eventually formed that way, yeah. but it, it's actually a fantastic solution. And, and Discord has the ability to create channels and rooms that, that I guess like-minded people can can go into and, and talk about different items that they want to talk about or different subjects that are, are relevant to them. So what we, we we chose to do is create our, our Discord for our, I guess, entire metaverse strategy. And within that are multiple channels of which people of, of like mind can go in and, and communicate with one another. I think for a, for a lot of people in this community, it is a, it's a source of information. It's a source of uh, truth where we can communicate as the AO directly with our consumers. One of the really unique things about Discord and, and similarly to Twitter is that it, it's kind of a marketer's dream in a way because it's a window into your community and it's a community that is talking in real time uh, about all sorts of topics that are relevant to them and your business. So, there's nothing stopping me from going and sitting in one of our Discord chat rooms for uh, half an hour here and there and actually viewing what, what people are saying. Plus, it's a chat log. So I can go back and, and look through all the discussions that people are having. I can see uh, whether there's a positive sentiment or a negative sentiment, what people in the community are wanting from us, uh, what, where, what, what they're satisfied with, uh, what they're maybe not satisfied with. So... From a from a strategic community management standpoint, I think it's a it's a fantastic tool for for brands to use. Uh, it doesn't have to just be NFT or metaverse related. I think as well. I think a lot of people are probably a little narrow minded in that sense that they think it's purely related to the metaverse and, and NFT project. But uh, I think we'll see in the near future that brands will start utilizing the likes of a Discord much more than they're utilising their social media channels in, in the future. Yeah. And do you think Discord, is it is it sort of a, a, a sort of Generation Z audience and under sort of thing? Who do, who do you think, what's, what's the sort of demographics on, a, on Discord? Yeah, look, uh, what we're probably seeing is right now it's more of a sort of crypto Web3 native audience. I think there's a lot of, a lot of people out there that, would not necessarily be exploring this space that have found their way to Discord for one reason or another. I know it's also widely used in the gaming community, um, and I, I think that is much more used as a as a chat room style of communication for that community, not necessarily for the the gaming fraternity to uh, explore and and I guess exploit in a way. Um, so yeah, it's been important for us to, to create a, I think a network and a community in there that has a, has a voice. There is transparency from us as a brand. And yeah, look, I, I love getting in there and seeing what people are, are talking about. And there's, look, there's positives and negatives like there is in any sort of project and on social media and where anyone has a forum that they can converse in. But it's how we then action those from a brand standpoint or a project standpoint that, 
that is really important. Great. Thanks for that. And sorry to put you on the spot with a 101 on what is Discord, <laughs> but I think, I think it's just really helpful to people to understand the importance of it. Maybe just dropping back to your project specifically. So, you know, you're, you're talking Decentraland, um, that you're talking NFTs and will be on Discord channels and so forth. How do you convince senior management and I don't know, maybe even the board that this is, this is something that you should be involved in? And, you know, there's, there's, there is an amount of cynicism around this world. And, you know, ha- how do you go about getting people comfortable that this isn't all going to collapse and be a big disaster and reputationally could impact uh, the Australian Open, et cetera? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I think. What I'm incredible from a, from a personal standpoint, I'm incredibly fortunate that the execs and the board and, and the more senior leaders at Tennis Australia are very open minded when it comes to use of technology and innovation. The, the driver of, of the majority of this came from the top and that was from senior management and execs that we always want to be pushing the boundaries on what's new in market. I, I think there's an element of that you need to take with any sort of new innovation or new technology that if you want to jump into that space and be one of the first industry leaders, I guess, or, or a little bit bleeding edge in a way, um, you need to be prepared to take a little bit of risk there. And I think we had the ability in the lead up to the event through throughout the year to do a bit of our due diligence on what this looked like and possibly what platforms and agencies and and direction we wanted to take in this space, that when we did get to the point of making decisions in uh, November, we had a, a lot of runs on the board and we had the support of, of the senior leaders within the, the organisation to run really quickly at it. And there was a huge element of trust that was that was put in myself and the team that were leading the project in the sense that, yes, you are representing an incredibly valuable piece of IP in the AO and Tennis Australia. And we always need to be wary of that, particularly in these uh, these new marketplaces. It's just, uh, I mean, well, congratulations to you for obviously selling the vision, uh, but also for the senior leadership to really get on board. Because I think that's it's always a problem within most organisations when you're at the very forefront of these sorts of advances. It can be a very lonely uh, position, so uh, so well done. Now, you mentioned Run It Wild, the agency and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of a partner and and how how you go about sort of executing uh, with a partner? And not, not necessarily specifically about Run It Wild, but I think, you know, for many organisations that I'm talking to, they don't, they don't, they've got an inkling, you know, there's, there's usually one or two believers within the organisation, but, you know, the, the tech team don't don't know this world and can't execute and so what what should people look for in in a in a partner yeah again this is a, a great topic of conversation because in this new world of web3 and and digital evolution that we're going through right now there are no true experts that that cover everything in this space uh, I think that's really important to note because there are a lot of people out there that will tell you they're experts. And I think when that should be the first red flag when any partner or collaboration is happening, that if someone is spruiking that they're the best at what they do and experts, run in the other direction as quickly as you can. Um, run it wild. 
we came across through Adam, who is the who is the partnerships manager at Decentraland. He actually owns Run It Wild as well. And once we got into discussion and they started pitching some ideas at us, I just had this this comforting feeling that they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were talking about. They also knew our brand, which was really important because they're Melbourne based. So they'd been to the event before. They knew the Australian Open. They knew Tennis Australia. We could go and have face-to-face meetings over a coffee or a, a lunch or or dinner, whatever that happened to be, to talk about the project in real time. And I think that, for me, gave me a sense of, of comfort that the project was in safe hands. And I think particularly in this space right now, there are so many elements that make up a project. There's There's the artwork, there's the concept, there's the smart contracts, there's the websites, there's the minting process, uh, there's contracts, there's Discord, there's social media channels. There are a whole lot of elements that have to come together so seamlessly to make this successful. And what Run It Wild as a partner did really well was build a team that gave us an individual that was in a running lane of their own. There wasn't a lot of crossover. So because our, our lead time was so short, Everyone knew exactly the lane that they had to stay in. No one ever crossed over into anyone else's. And we never had any of those moments where we felt, oh, there's too many cooks in the kitchen right now. How are we going to make a decision? Because the decisions that we were making needed to be in minutes and hours. We didn't have days and weeks to make those. So who the right person was to make those decisions, how we got to the decision and what that or what impact that had on the next day's decision was really important that we uh, were all in the same time zone as well, just to uh, to progress that forward really quickly. So I think from, in, in my opinion, the team that was built around this project was absolutely the most important part of the project from, from start to finish. And I mean, the, so the project, my assessment of it looked incredibly successful and, I, and my, my sense is internally it's been regarded as a success. Can you talk a little bit about how do you, within the organisation, how do you measure success? I mean, obviously financial is, is one metric, but there's a whole range of other uh, parameters I imagine that you look at. Can you talk to us? How do we assess ROI on, on this sort of a project? Again, a great question. And this was something that we, we dabbled with in, in sort of November, December that what does success look like in this project? And I, I don't think any of us that were, were leading the project, even, even from above really knew what success looked like. So I think when we were exploring a little bit further into NFTs and metaverse, it was a little bit of a, all right, let's throw some numbers on a, on a piece of paper and see if that's where we, eventually get to one of the i think one of the the great decisions that we made early days was not to measure success based on financials it was never a money-making exercise for us it was a as i said earlier it was an exploration in innovation and technology and we, we were fortunate that i guess uh from a from a high level perspective there often is a lot of um, hey, we need to put a budget to this and we need to make this many dollars. And if this doesn't happen, we, ne- we don't go forward with it in the future. We never had that dis- discussion at all. It was never a factor. Um, the factor was around accessibility and taking our event to as many people globally as we could, but also taking tennis as a sport 
to as many people globally as we could and promoting tennis as a sport to those people who otherwise may not engage with tennis that regularly. So key success measures for us in our NFT project was it was selling out. Ultimately, that was all that we wanted to do, um, but not from a financial perspective. We, success was selling out. We thought that might have been over a two or three day period, not in 33 minutes. Uh, so that was success. We, we ticked the number one box there. What we, what we knew with Decentraland was that there was an audience there that were already exploring Decentraland. That was one of the reasons we chose to build in Decentraland because we knew that there was an audience that we could take our brand to. We didn't have to bring in an external audience to us. There was around 80,000 monthly active users in Decentraland at that point in time. So we thought if we can get around 50% of that, so 50% rounded up a little bit, 50,000 was a, was a nice round figure to work with. And if we could have 50,000 visitors through AOD Central and in a two week period, that would be success for us. And as long as they were engaged through that period. So we ended up with 170,000 unique visitors over two weeks. So again, I think we, we ticked the box there, but we also kept them engaged. And, and as I mentioned earlier, that was through gamification or collectability or um, new things to watch and see and explore whenever they came back to the space. So, yeah, I think for the most part, we have to look at the, the project as being successful. And, and now we go to the next 12 months. And what do we do to extend that beyond just two weeks in January? And that's a really important factor for us now is that what does the NFT project look like in March, April, May, June? How do we integrate with other sports, other Grand Slams, other tennis tournaments? And how do we keep a, a an otherwise really engaged community uh, engaged throughout the year? And I think that's a another big success measure for us is how do we extend the AO beyond two weeks in January? And so now as we explore what that becomes, that's another important factor that we don't just put this project to bed until next January. Uh, yeah, it's it's got a heartbeat year round. That's a that's a massive change. Can I just say congratulations on that metric? That that is an insane metric. One hundred and seventy thousand uniques of a of an eighty thousand per month unique figure. That's that's wonderful. So congratulations. I guess just on that, um, you mentioning you know the what's happening with the future, and obviously just between you and I, of course, any. Uh, any sort of scoops you want to drop on, uh, on on what the AO might be doing? Yeah, look, there's a ton of conversations that we're happening uh, are happening in market right now. I think we're incredibly fortunate as a brand like Tennis Australia and the AO that we have a huge network in market um, that extends across global brands, global rights holders, um, other other sporting properties, other sporting organisations that that we know incredibly well through our, through our network. We have around 100 partners and media rights partners alone in, in the global space. So we're having conversations with a lot of these partners right now about what comes next and how do we link up with you in what you're doing in market? How do we give you value? How can you give us value? What's the collaboration here? And I think that's, it's a really nice element of this world that we're living in in this digital space right now is the the give the giving nature of of this world and that people want to give to you and and we want to give to them as well and there's there's this really nice collaborative community going on that 
that doesn't expect to just take, take, take from everyone else. So the conversations that we're having in market are incredibly positive right now. Um, absolutely, there'll be some some big news coming through the, the coming months. Right now, I guess time is our friend and our foe, as it was back in November and December. Um, in in that sense, back in November and December, it was our foe because we had this such a short timeline, uh, but it was also our friend because we had to make really quick decisions. Now it's the opposite. We have a long lead time to make decisions. So you start thinking about the grey area in those decisions and it's not just black or white, um, but at the same time we do have we do have time to make those decisions and ensure that those decisions are right for our project, they're right for our community, our investors and our art ball holders, um, but also Tennis Australia and the AO, but also the partners that we're working with as well. Can I just ask one more project-related question? You've been very generous with your time, but I'm interested if we look at ticketing, particularly in NFTs. It was, you know, it was interesting that you didn't decide to go with ticketing as the way to drop the NFTs. And if you look at the Super Bowl this year, it was all NFTs. And I think, um, you know, the US football, the NFL, I think they've said they did a quarter of a million tickets as NFTs this year and Coachella have some VIP ticketing for their music festival. What, what do you think is the, is, is sort of the, the pros and cons of, of ticketing via NFTs for big events? Yeah, I think it has to be meaningful. I, I think yeah. more than anything, like there, yes, there's a collectability element and, and people have collected ticket stubs or lanyards or wristbands or whatever that happens to be as a, as a bit of a, a, a memory box collection in a way of, Hey, I went to Coachella in, 2010 or I went to Glastonbury in, in the first year or I went to this concert or I went to this sporting event or I went to this TED talk. People have collected those, those aspects of their life for, for a long time and they do deteriorate over time. The beauty of the NFT collectability in, in ticketing form and event format is that they will exist forever in a way. <clears throat> what can then happen in the future is, is where this becomes powerful that if you have an NFT from that event or that collection or a POAP, which is a, for, for listeners, <coughs> excuse me, is a proof of attendance protocol. So basically a, a smart contract in a way that says you were at this event and you can prove you were there because the contract says so. Um, how we use those in the future <coughs> becomes really important in the sense that if I go to, uh, sorry, as a, as a Tennis Australia employee, if I go to the Coachella brand and say, Hey, would you like to collaborate on next year's AO? We'd like to give everyone that went to Coachella this year a 10% discount on tickets. How do we do that? Okay. We can look into the digital wallets <clears throat> and see who has that NFT ticket or proof of attendance protocol and then give them the discount and bring them across to our brand as well. And likewise, we can then say to Coachella, okay, everyone who has an AO Artball NFT, what can you give them? And can you give them early access to tickets? Can you give them a discount to tickets? Can you give them merchandise access or whatever that is? So you get this really nice cross-pollination um, across brands and communities as well that gives the owners of those NFTs or tickets um, utility beyond it just being an NFT. No, that's, that's brilliant. Um I guess just I will ask one final question, which is just about sort of any advice that you would have um, for organisations wanting to go down this path. Maybe just before we do that, just, so tennis. Are you a tennis player? Is that is that why you're there, or no? You just 
Oh, look, I pick up the racket occasionally. <laughs> but no, no, I wasn't. Uh, look, I played occasionally before I joined. But, right. uh, yeah, we do fortunately have amazing access to some great courts with our office at uh, Melbourne Park that we do get to jump onto the Australian Open courts occasionally when we're when we're working in office. Oh, fantastic. And what a great event this year with Ash Barty, you know, winning. Obviously, you know, there, were, there were a number of great events, but... It was just terrific. And, you know, we've all been working on our slice backhand since that. Uh, oh, absolutely. Incredibly <laughs> important stroke, as I think we've all seen. <laughs> Who knew? So, look, just to finish off, thank you very much, uh, Ridley. It's been very, you know, so insightful um, to hear such a positive story about this. And, you know, can I say, too, because Australia doesn't have necessarily a lot of stories about NFT drops and so forth. So you really took an extraordinary risk and um, obviously a very calculated risk and it's wonderful to see it pay off so well. And thank you for sharing so much information. I guess the, you know, the final thing would be, you know, if if you could give, you know, a piece of advice to, you know, an organisation that's thinking about Web3, is there, um, you know, is there something that you would you would say to them? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's two questions that, that brands can be asking right now and I think that is, could it be an NFT? And I think that exists for projects that are, are happening in real life right now. And then why could it be an NFT or why should it be an NFT? And I think that's more for the NFT ideas that are coming through that they have to be meaningful. I, I don't think, I, I, sorry, I think consumers will very quickly start to see through brands that are purely doing drops or releasing NFTs as a cash grab. And that will fail for the brands. And that's where those, those questions are key that don't just make the decision on a, on a whim, ask the questions of should it be an NFT? Why should it be an NFT? Or on the flip side, could it be an NFT? And there might be a, a market opportunity that exists for ideas that are happening in real life right now, uh, with a new community and new audience that, that a brand hasn't even tapped into yet. Fantastic. Well, Ridley, thank you very much uh, for your time. Congratulations once again on an incredible success. And we look forward to uh, what happens over the next 12 months as we uh, as we see the AO and the, uh, the NFT and Metaverse project uh, continue to develop. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nick. Great to chat. Thanks for listening to Web3 from Mystery to Mainstream. Nothing in this podcast is legal or financial advice. Have a great day. And remember... Every organization needs a Web3 strategy.